Hey guys, welcome back to the Clinical Concepts Podcast. Hope everybody had a nice Thanksgiving with their families. Hope everyone had the opportunity to uh, take some time off, reset, and come back now ready to finish out the year strong as good EMS providers. This episode today is going to talk about something called PDCD or pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency. And this is a topic that I will be honest with you. I knew existed, but wasn't incredibly familiar with, and it came to my attention uh, at at work that we had a uh, patient who lives in our primary service area uh, who who suffers from this, and our, when our providers brought that to my attention. They had reached out uh, regarding putting some education together uh, regarding this topic, and I thought that that was a really good idea because this is something that we don't encounter very often. And beyond that, they are something that uh, they are they are uh, patients that that are often critically ill children, which at baseline is something that I know as EMS providers has a tendency to freak us out. So I wanted to take a couple minutes and just drop a short episode to everybody and talk about this disorder uh, because I think that it is something that we as EMS providers, although we may not encounter it often, should be uh, should be familiar with should it present itself to us. So with that said, let's jump into it. So, like I said, one of the things that I wanted to shed the, shed the light on was this disease pathology called PDCD, or pyruvate dehydrogenase complex deficiency. And like I mentioned, this is somewhat of a rare uh, abnormality that affects critically ill children, but it's something that's complicated enough that we as EMS people need to be sure that we are that we are proficient in our understanding of how to manage these patients, specifically if it's a patient that you're exposed to uh, in your in your practice area. So how does this work? First and foremost, we need to understand the f- normal physiology of the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, or PDC. So PDC's primary function is to metabolically convert pyruvate into the acetyl coenzyme A, and this is done via glycolysis. Now. Once that is done, this conversion that occurs, occurs during the Krebs cycle. And what will happen is it actually takes substrates from carbohydrates, fatty acids, and amino acids, and it converts them to cellular energy for the mitochondria. Now, if you recall, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, and that provides the cellular energy that then is in turn uh, used and extrapolated out to the rest of your body to allow you to to allow you to essentially manage all of your other physiologic functions. So when a patient has PDCD, their physiology doesn't work like it should, and they're cre- they have an abnormality of their Krebs cycle. So what happens is the pyruvate can't be converted to acetyl-CoA. And because it can't be converted, there's a lack of energy. So the problem is, when they have this lack of energy in the mitochondria, there's a lactic acid buildup, which is part of compensation, which causes acidosis and acidemia, and other significant neurodysfunctions that we'll talk about. So the main thing that you should be aware of as an EMS provider when a patient has PDCD is that they, again, they have an abnormality in their Krebs cycle, which prevents the conversion of pyruvate from acetyl-CoA or to acetyl-CoA rather. So because this happens, when the cells don't have energy in their mitochondria, 
they don't have the energy to perform vital body function. Now, if this happens before you are born, as you might imagine, this can become problematic because if the body doesn't have the energy in the cells to perform vital body function, it doesn't have the energy in the cells to develop you correctly. Okay, so what happens here is these patients have brain malformations in utero because they are unable to because they are unable to um, because they are unable to provide that energy to the mitochondria that helps that brain develop. In addition, in utero as well as in the neonatal stage of life, they can have progressive neurodegeneration. So they have things like hypomyelination, which is their uh, uh, inability to produce myelin at normal levels. So it causes um, it causes the size of the basal ganglia uh, and the size of the myelin on nerves to to be inefficient and ineffective. It can cause cystic lesions on the pancreas, which can cause uh, endocrine abnormalities. Uh, these patients patients have gly gliosis, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, of the cerebellum and gray matter degeneration. So this means that they have abnormal creation of glial cells and those support the nerve cells. So kind of like hypomyelination, if they don't have the nerve cell, uh, they don't have the nerve cell development, they're then unable to have sensory and motor responses that are appropriate for them, which causes them to have um, hypotonia and some other things that we'll talk about. The other thing is that, that this causes scarring on the brain. So if they have scar tissue on the brain, specifically during pediatric and neonatal development, it then causes that further uh, further uh, inability for that for that brain uh, to develop the way that it should. And finally, it can cause necrotizing encephalopathy. So they will actually have necrotizing, uh, necrotizing uh, cranial, intracranial and brain tissue, which is unfortunately incredibly sad. From an epidemiologic perspective, this affects about one in 50,000 people. Now, what you have to remember is that that's diagnosable. And usually it's diagnosed via clinical genetics while in utero. However, the problem is if a child isn't diagnosed in utero with genetic testing, they could be born and then present with neurologic dysfunction. And if they're presenting with neurologic dysfunction, everyone knows that your differential diagnosis for this can be significant. And I'll be honest with you, PDCD, when I have a neurologically compromised child, probably isn't at the top of my differential list, but potentially uh, is something that could be. So specifically if it goes undiagnosed. One in three cases result from recessive, uh, recessive gening, right, which affects males and females. But most commonly, this is a mutation of the X-linked E1 alpha enzyme. Okay, so what that means is that two in three of these cases result from the mom uh, being an unexpressive carrier, right? So the mom passes this uh, mom passes this enzyme onto her child uh, genetically, unknowingly, if she was a carrier. And it's most common in males. To keep in mind uh, when we're thinking about this is that, uh, like I said, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that this happens from that mutation of the carboxylase enzyme or that E1 enzyme. So if you look at the uh, if you look at the screen, what you would have seen was that circular uh, that circular 
enzyme, if you were looking at this, which then converts to a malformed shape, which causes this, uh, which causes this breakdown. So the prognosis of this is really hard is really hard to predict because if the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, I'm trying to think of how to say this um, so it makes sense. If the PDC, if the PDC complex um, has appropriate activity or not enough activity, it's going to depend on how we fix this or how, how it presents. So if they have decreased uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex activity, they're going to have increased PDCD severity. So the, the less effective their Krebs cycle is with converting that pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, the more significant their deficiency is. So again, it's challenging to predict. And remember that that's challenging to predict in somebody who is only suffering from this abnormality. If you add additional comorbidities in there, right, whether that be Down syndrome, autism, diabetes, anything of that effect, it becomes far more complicated and far more severe. So if we're assessing this child and we think that they may have PDCD. First and foremost, just as you are assessing any child, use the parents or guardian to your advantage. They are incredibly knowledgeable of their child's conditions. So use them to their advantage. They will know more about it than you, and that is perfectly okay. Some providers think that if you say, if you say that, um, you know, oh, I don't know, I don't know anything about this this pathology, that they are going to think less of you. I would argue quite the opposite. It's all in how you phrase it. If you say to them, you know, I'm not incredibly familiar with PDCD, can you tell me about it? I think that that tells me that number one, you're committed to lifelong learning, and number two, that you have the best interest of their child in mind by openly disclosing to them that you're not incredibly familiar, but you want to use them as a resource and you are committed to ensuring the safety and well-being of their child. So if they know about this, if this is a known diagnosis, by all means, use the parents and guardians to uh, to your advantage. If it is a not known diagnosis, there are some things that should maybe end up um, you know, sort of in your red flag bin for this that they tell you in their historical findings. So again, not specifically poor feeding or increased lethargy. Everyone knows that this could be for any number of reasons in a critically ill child, right? Certainly not just isolated to what we're talking about. But poor feeding, increased lethargy, decreased mental status, right? Those are all things that that we should uh, we should consider when we're looking at these children. Additionally, shortness of breath or increased work of breathing or ataxic breathing, because remember that they don't have the nerve myelin that they need, which causes which causes disruptions in their central nervous system, which helps regulate your respiratory function between your lung uh, your lung uh, organ structures and or your respiratory organ structures rather, in your brain. Likewise, seizure activity. Again, with brain malformations, brain scarring, neuroabnormalities, a common response is seizures. So certainly, again, there are things that cause these uh, these abnormalities beyond PDCD, right? Like you could have a dehydrated kid, you could have a febrile kid, a kid with RSV that could present with any or all of these things. But when we're checking all the boxes and we're doing our assessments and we're just not getting there, I think that this is something we should add to our list. However, 
Far more specifically, there are developmental delays that occur, right? So missed milestones. Because of hypotonia, because of poor development, these kids might not be able to sit, walk, crawl, etc. at the normal developmental benchmark. So those are things to be aware of. They might be small for their age because of stunned growth development with poor psychomotor function. So if you've ever been around a little child, what you'll know is that the older they get, the more active they become. But if they have decreased psychomotor function, that could be something that is an indicator of this. Likewise, they're going to have decreased muscle tone and progressive dystonia which uh, causes them to not be able to not be able to not only physically move but this can affect their diaphragmatic muscles which then ultimately lead to ventilator dependency if they are uh, if they have progressed that far there are so there are also I can't talk some dysmorphology uh, dysmorphologies that you should be aware of. So these kids with PDCD will often have narrow foreheads with frontal bossing. So think of a a long narrow forehead that sort of protrudes outward from where it would normally be, and they will often also have a wide nasal bridge with antiverted nostrils. So it'll look like their nasal passages are actually backwards uh, in their nose. They'll kind of be upside down and facing the wrong direction. So from a body system assessment perspective, when these children are born, they often have low APGAR scores that don't uh, rapidly increase as the average healthy newborn does, and they can often require uh, resuscitation up to and including CPR. So keep those things in mind, and again, it's likely because they are under neurologically developed, which is causing their uh, organ structures and the dysfunctions from their central nervous systems to not be effectively uh, communicating with one another. From a neuro perspective, you'll see that ataxic breathing, which we'll talk about here in a minute, um, hypotonia, so that's a decreased muscle tone, poor pupillary responses, and then while you're doing your cranial nerve exams, when you get to the cr third cranial nerve, you'll notice that they not only have pupillary abnormalities, but they'll have uh, they'll have abnormal ocular movements, so their eyes their eyes won't follow you, they won't be able to move up and down, and again, it's because of the degeneration of the ocular modal nerves uh, and the myelin thereof that is preventing this from happening. From a respiratory perspective, you might see that ataxic breathing, which is the disordered control of breathing, so this is this is rapid breathing. Sometimes it's known as biots breathing, where their respiratory patterns are very rapid, and this sort of this sort of alternation back and forth between deep and shallow and fast and slow, usually on the faster side, and it's very very disordered. Other things that you may see are Shane Stokes respirations. Now, Shane Stokes respirations we're all familiar with because of diabetic ketoacidosis and their compensation and blowing off ketones from their acidosis. This is no different. Because these patients have a buildup of lactic acid, they're, they're metabolically acidotic, and sometimes their body will kick into this Shane Stokes breathing pattern where their body will then try to blow off uh, some of that carbon dioxide from the acidosis. Cardiovascularly, cardiovascularly, you might also see tachycardia secondary to the compensation from their body systems working hard 
And you may also see a see an abnormality called electrical alternans or, or other dysrhythmias, again, from central nervous system dysfunction. But electrical alternans is when you look at an EKG and the QRS complexes are opposite. So you'll have upward deflections followed by a downward deflection and so on and so forth. There are several different things that can cause electrical alternans. It's certainly not just PDCD. However, this is one of the things that you may see, again, from the neurologic dysfunction. From a hemodynamic perspective, these patients are awfully going to present to you, um, often will present with a normal to tachycardic heart rate um, with the possibility of dysrhythmias and electrical alternance like we talked about. They often will have a normal to increased respiratory rate. This is secondary to compensation from their acidosis uh, with, coinc with coinciding oxygenation and, uh, and ventilation uh, ventilation reading. So again, oxygenation, that's measured by SpO2. Uh, and in that SpO2, you'll see it normal to decreased, depending upon how ataxic they are. Uh, likewise, with ventilation, you'll see a normal to decreased um, uh, end tidal CO2 reading because of the tachypnea. However, if they are in a decompensated state because they're incredibly acidemic, you're going to see that end tidal CO2 start to rise because A, their respiratory rate will slow down and B, they have the buildup of CO2 in their body, which is causing, which is uh, from their acidosis, not necessarily causing it, but it's from their acidosis. If you have the ability to do point-of-care testing, you'll notice a metabolic, metabolically acidotic blood gas on these patients, almost at baseline. And you'll notice, if you can do it, you'll notice an elevated lactate, um, an elevated lactate of greater than five. Remembering that a normal lactate is somewhere between one and two, kind of depending upon the book you read. But anything greater than two is is uh, generally concerning uh, due to uh, due to acidosis. So when we are assessing these patients, again, if we have a known PDCD history, then that helps us significantly. If we, if we don't and we have to create a differential diagnosis, that things that, the things that I would put on my uh, differential diagnosis would be, first and foremost, lactic acidosis um, from, the, from, the, from the buildup of lactic acid uh, and the inability to convert pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. Electron transport chains disorders, again, will often present like this. Likewise, people with thymine deficiencies uh, or, or even, unfortunately, kids with fetal alcohol syndrome uh, will have similar dysmorphologies as kids with PDCD. So from an EMS care perspective, I think it's really important that we take these patients to their medical home. So if you're around, uh, you know, if you're around, uh, you know, here where we live, uh, that's UPMC Children's uh, or that's WVU Medicine uh, Children's Hospital in Morgantown. Um, but... But these kids need to go to their medical home because they are managed by, by special teams of, of nurses and physicians that specialize in this disorder. Certainly, if you have a PDCD kid that needs stitches, by all means, they can go to a local facility. But any acute illness in a kid with an underlying PDCD should really go to wherever their medical home is. Now, the definitive standard of care for this is cofactor supplementation with thymine, uh, canatine, and uh, light lipoid acid, uh, lipoid acid, I can't talk. Um, and this prevents worsening pathophysiology. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll continuously dose uh, these children 
uh, with these uh, with these cofactors, which help create the energy for the mitochondria that can't occur because of the uh, inability to convert that pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. So the EMS care, with all of that being said, is in ground EMS largely supported. Um, certainly, we have the ability to treat lactic, lactic acidemia uh, and reverse some of their symptoms. Uh, but remember that this is not going to treat the underlying cause, right? It's like treating a heart arrhythmia secondary to sepsis. Uh, you know, you can treat the arrhythmia all day long, but ultimately we're not really going to fix the patient until we start to fix the sepsis. This is no different. So um, this is, you know, fixing that lactic acidemia in a PDCD kit is not is not recommended in the EMS field or outside of an uncontrolled environment, um, you know, in, other than like the, the ED or the ICU. If the patient is in significant decompensated shock um, from lactic acidemia, you can consider giving them uh, a one milliequivalent per kilo um, kilo uh, bolus of sodium bicarbonate, um, so long as they have normal hepatic function. But uh, at least where we live in Pennsylvania, this is a medical command call. Um, you have to call them to give orders uh, to get orders to give the sodium bicarbonate. The other thing that you should remember is that this should really be accompanied by aggressive BVM ventilation because bicarbonate is the primary transporter of CO2 in the body. So if we have a patient that we're giving a large dose um, of bicarbonate to, not only are we is it going to have a uh, have an effect on their respiratory function, but remember they're already acidotic. So they have that buildup of CO2 that we will have to help mitigate, and aggressive BVM ventilation is an outstanding way to do that. So at present, um, there is not a cure uh, for PDCD. So there is a significant amount of research going on out there. There's the Hope for PDCD Foundation um, and many others that that certainly work through this. Um, but these kids with PDCD often live okay lives. Um, certainly if it is a child that is diagnosed with PDCD uh, in utero or in the neonatal stage of their life, they unfortunately often do not live beyond their childhood. Um, and as their neurodegenerative state worsens, their quality of life also worsens. Like I mentioned, these kids can sometimes be ventilator dependent or live in a constant state of a decreased uh, mental status, like their normals, a GCS of eight or something like that. But they're often incredibly well cared for uh, during their short life. If these children are diagnosed later in life, um, and by later in life, I mean into their childhood, um, they generally, unfortunately, often die young. They only live into early adulthood or so. So they still unfortunately die young, but they tend to have better quality of qualities of life while they are alive. So, you know, we are, you know, we as a scientific community are certainly working through this. We as EMS providers and healthcare professionals help with this every day by asking these kinds of questions um, and getting familiar with these types of pathologies, which ultimately help us provide better care, care to the community. So, so with that being said, I understand that this isn't an incredibly, uh, you know, overly exciting topic, right? You know, nobody is, you know, other than unless a clinic, unless you're a clinical geneticist, is overly excited with the processes of glycolysis and the Krebs cycle. But I think it really is important that we 
that we remember that these processes really do affect us and the patients that we take care of. You know, by being an EMS provider who's taking the time to have an understanding of that disease pathology and, oh, okay, so the pyruvate isn't getting converted to acetyl-CoA, that's causing the mitochondria to not be able to pull substrates from the fatty acids, carbohydrates, and aminos. And because of that, they have a lack of energy buildup, which causes X, Y, and Z medical complaints that we talked about. That is making us better providers. That is helping us provide better care for our patients, and that is helping us really improve the system of care. Like I mentioned, you know, there isn't a cure for PDCD yet, much as there isn't a cure for many of the disease pathologies that we encounter. But by taking the time to learn more about them, be more familiar with them, and be committed to having an impact on our patients, we are committed to advancing that scientific community, uh, you know, as the folks on the EMS Lighthouse Project say, through the bright light of science. So I really, I really appreciate everybody taking the time to tune into this. Like I said, this is a topic that's close to me because it is a topic that affects me where I uh, work clinically uh, because we have a patient that is affected by this. And I wanted to get that information out to everybody because I think that it's just something good to put in your back pocket, pocket to have in your arsenal and help you care for those patients. And one more thing that you can add to your differential lists as we are unfortunately taking care of critically ill children. So as always, if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out uh, at clinicalconceptspodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us uh, on LinkedIn. But until next time, I hope that everybody has a happy holiday season. Stay safe and do good care.